Welcome back to Is It Pompey Disease? Exploring Australian Cases on the Hereditary Disease Pod. In this three-part instalment, a neurologist and co-author of the current Pompey Disease Consensus Recommendations, Professor Merrilee Needham, illustrates the broad clinical spectrum of Pompey Disease, a rare but treatable neuromuscular disorder. In this episode, she recalls the diagnostic path of a patient with severe respiratory muscle weakness. The third case is uh, Mr CG. He's a 60-year-old man and he actually presented with aspiration pneumonia. It was a very severe aspiration pneumonia. It was complicated by a cardiac arrest and he required intensive care admission and intubation. And we were only called to consult because they had difficulty weaning him from a ventilator. When we went back into his background history, he had a tonsillar carcinoma that was resected um, from the left side of his throat. It was a squamous cell carcinoma. And this was followed up with uh, radiation as well as chemotherapy um, post-surgery. He was considered in remission from his cancer. Uh, and he also had a background history of some bronchiectasis. When we were finally able to extubate him and uh, take a history from him, um, he actually reported that his symptoms began at the age 33, so 27 years before. He first noticed shortness of breath when he was diving or snorkeling underwater. And at that time, he went to see some respiratory physicians and he was diagnosed with bilateral phrenic nerve palsies because they noticed his diaphragm wasn't moving. And I have to say, as a neuromuscular neurologist um, in Australia, this is quite a, a really interesting symptom that patients with respiratory muscle weakness notice first the difficulty breathing underwater um, because presumably of the extrinsic pressure applied to the chest. That was his very first symptom and he was a passionate scuba diver. And then he noticed progressive difficulty lifting heavy weights. And then in the most recent time, six to seven year history of increasing dysphagia and he'd had a couple of episodes of aspiration pneumonia. But while we were trying to wean him off the ventilator, it was um, detected that it was difficulty due to muscle weakness. So he went on and had a muscle biopsy and it was on the muscle biopsy that we got the clue that this man had uh, Pompey's disease because we saw vacuoles as well as glycogen accumulation. So we went backwards and did a Pompey's blood spot that showed that he had reduced enzyme activity and eventually we found um, genetic confirmation. So just to tell you what his clinical exam was uh, when we could actually examine him after his ICU admission, again, his face and cranial nerves were entirely normal, but he did have some neck flexor weakness and he had wasting of his pec major and trapezius on the left side that we thought was probably due to his prior surgery and radiation uh, related to his cancer. But he did have bilateral wing scapulae. He had a stoop posture with some camptochormia. He had very mild proximal upper limb weakness and mild hip flexor weakness, but the rest of his limb exams were normal. So his was a very axial presentation. So the take home lesson from this third case is the common involvement of respiratory muscles in Pompey's disease. And patients often present with symptoms relating to sleep disruption because that's where weak muscles uh, first manifest symptoms. So they present with symptoms like excessive daytime somnolence or waking with a dry mouth. And waking with a headache is a bit of a red flag that they're starting to develop hypercarbia overnight. It also um, highlights the importance of fully evaluating the respiratory muscles. And to do this, you, you don't just have to do spirometry with force vital capacity, but you have to ask your uh, local pulmonary function lab, if possible, to do maximal inspiratory and expiratory pressures, 
always try to do erect and supine FVCs, and that gives you a really big clue as, as to whether the diaphragm is involved. And if you can get nasal pressures with SNPs, that's also very helpful in fully evaluating uh, the, uh, the respiratory muscle strength. Finally, always consider this in a patient presenting with recurrent aspiration pneumonia. Really always think about a neuromuscular cause there, and it's always worth uh, ruling out a treatable disease like Pompe's disease. So to just summarise um, the, the late onset Pompe's disease, 80% of late onset Pompe's present, patients present with a triad of proximal, particularly leg uh, and hip girdle involvement, respiratory muscle involvement, and axial weakness that will often present with abdominal protuberance or camptochormia. If you're ever um, thinking about Pompey's disease or in the workup for an undiagnosed muscle disease, obviously we always do a CK and less specifically is um, the AST and ALT and LDH. And as I said, the CK is usually elevated in more than 95% of patients with late onset Pompey's disease. And always think about doing a Pompey's blood spot. It's cheap, it's non-invasive and it's easy test to do. And that's a pretty sensitive test for picking up the enzyme activity. Increasingly in neuromuscular disorders, uh, I like doing MRI scans because it really demonstrates uh, the pattern of muscle disease. Um, and if you can access it, uh, the whole body protocols are really interesting, I think. Further investigation, so I, I do love EMG. I think it's a, a really useful extension of the clinical examination. And about 70% of patients will be identified to have myopathic potentials. And I think it's not 100% because I think it's of a very operator dependent test. And I think it depends a lot on the interaction between the neuromuscular neurologist and the EMGer. So they might have just um, needled the wrong muscles to not find the myopathic potentials. I think it's very important that you always ask your EMGer to do the paraspinal muscles um, in, in any muscle case because if you ever see myotonia in the paraspinal muscles, that's a bit of a clue that you might be dealing with something like Pompey's disease. I always do respiratory function testing in an undiagnosed muscle disease, particularly if there's axial or, or proximal weakness. And what you're looking for is a restrictive pattern that might be suggestive of respiratory muscle weakness. And again, as I said before, you wanna go on and do the SNPs and maximal inspiratory and expiratory pattern, as well as erect and supine force vital capacity. Finally, I do cardiac investigations in many of my undiagnosed muscle patients, partly because if there is cardiac involvement, it's um, important to, uh, to work that out and to treat them with medical therapy like ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and some even require pacemakers and implantable defibrillators. But it's also a big diagnostic clue because not all muscle diseases involve the heart. In terms of late onset Pompey's disease, none of my uh, current patients have any uh, involvement of their heart and it's not consistently associated with the late onset Pompey's disease. What are the red flags for considering um, Pompey's disease? I think the combination of limb girdle weakness plus hyperCKemia. I think if the CK level itself is not terribly high, it's usually less than a thousand. Um, in patients like with dysphalonopathies or more inflammatory dystrophies, their CKs tend to be quite a bit higher than a thousand. There's disproportionate respiratory and axial weakness compared to the limb girdle weakness that you see in limb girdle muscular dystrophies. 
So I think that's a really important learning point and a very important red flag for the diagnosis of late onset Pompe's disease. And finally, again, as I just said, if you see myotonic discharges in the paraspinal muscles, that's a big clue. Thank you for joining us for this important discussion on Pompey disease. For more information about testing for Pompey disease, please visit sanofigenzymeonline.com.au forward slash diagnostics. And don't forget to check the episode notes for resources, references and links.